host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Dom Lushishin. Dom, what's going on, man? Not too much. Just always happy to be here. Dim and Dom, once again, reunited. A Dim and Dom production. Yeah, I have to have you on. I think this is the first time I've had you on this season. Obviously, I would have you on regardless, but I think it's important for me to have you on a regular basis just to prove to people that we are different people because <laughs> yeah. uh, I've ironically been getting a lot of angry messages sent my way from Canucks fans telling me to stay up and watch late games here on Pacific time, which is especially funny considering I live here in Vancouver and yeah, uh, am watching those games regardless. But yes, it's uh, just want to prove that we are in fact different people by uh, having this conversation. Yeah. Uh, I think it's funny also because I feel like I've tweeted about uh, taking naps so often that they should be iconic. And part of the reason is because I, I do stay up for the West coast games most nights and go to bed at one wake up at like 8 30 and then i need to regain that hour somewhere midday well, uh, you're st- some sometimes people get traded during that time and it's a it's a good sign for the league well you're uh you're stepping on uh seth jarvis's corner there he's really trying to make taking a lot of naps his brand and i think he's succeeding <laughs> he's uh attributing a lot of his success in the nhl to that so good for him okay here's the plan for today we're gonna bounce around the league we're gonna take a look at a bunch of interesting storylines that have caught our eyes stuff you've written about recently stuff that i've been thinking about and a lot of uh there's been a lot of conversation in the pdo guest discord recently about a lot of this stuff so we're going to use some of those listener questions as well as launching pads for this uh discussion today and so here's a, a good one to start us off uh this is from a pdo guest follower in discord server that says now that we've passed the quarter mark of the season, the Calder would go to Connor Bedard if the season ended today. The implied odds from sports books have him around 70% or so likely to win the award. Is it really that wide of a margin? I feel like this is the best crop of rookies we've seen in a long time. If you think it isn't, who would you say has the best shot at passing him? Now, I quickly looked up uh, at Bet365, for example. They have Bedard at minus 350. Mm-hmm. Second is Luke Hughes, plus 1,000. And then you go down to Logan Cooley, Brock Faber, Fentilli, Carlson, so on and so forth. There's a long list of players who are very interesting prospects and have had awesome rookie seasons for a variety of reasons. But the gap between Bedard and everyone else in the field right now is about as wide as you'd see. I think that those minus 315 implied odds have them at like 75% or even 80% uh, implied. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel about this, about the market, about Bedard season, this Calder class as well, because I do agree with the general point that there's a lot of really, really enticing names uh, in terms of what they're doing right out of the gate in the NHL. Yeah, it feels like the market is not wrong based on sentiments alone. I think as soon as he stepped onto the ice, people were ready to hand him the Calder. Um, And he has earned it offensively obviously he's got 28 points in 31 games he is doing that despite a complete lack of talent around him on chicago he is facing tough competition every night i i just don't think the gap is quite as wide as the markets suggest and i gotta go to bat for my boy brock faber who has been the best defenseman on the Minnesota Wild. He's playing 24 minutes a night. He is a insanely good shutdown defenseman as a rookie, which is might be just as hard to do as being a first line forward as a rookie. Like in terms of stepping into the NHL as someone's never played in that league before, the two toughest things you can do, I think, are be a shutdown defenseman facing tough minutes every night and up good defense numbers and doing what Bedard's doing and scoring at a near point per game pace and creating all this offense on your own like those are two incredibly difficult roles to fill and they're both doing them exceptionally well and I think Faber's a lot closer to Bedard than sentiment right now suggests yes in terms of actual uh real life production i agree with you i actually think you know in terms of what we think will happen versus what what we think should happen though like mm-hmm. it probably the gap should probably be even wider because i think that people had already sort of 
been ready. Like there was so much hype heading into the season on Bedard, right? And the fact that he's actually delivered on it, I think he's done nothing to sort of dissuade people from that. So if you had already entered the season, just like penciling him in at the top of your Calder ballot, I think it's going to take something like truly historic from someone else or a Bedard injury potentially to like change your perception of that. So yeah. like it, it, often with these awards and, and betting the betting market, you're trying to kind of prognosticate what awards orders will do and where they're leaning. And so I would say that everyone is leaning pretty heavily towards Bedard and, you know, rightly so like he's, he's had a phenomenal season. You mentioned sort of the the context of the environment, like how difficult the degree of difficulty of what he's doing in terms of the usage of the minutes, who he's playing against, who he's playing with. I think I expected him right out of the gate to score 30, 35, maybe even push for 40 goals because that shot is so elite. And because mm-hmm. I thought he'd already feast on the power play. And then you look, he's got one power play goal so far. They're 28th in power play uh, efficiency as a team. And yet he's still got 12, 12 goals in 31 games. He's got 11 more points than any teammate of his. Uh, mm-hmm. He's drawn a bunch of penalties with his elusiveness and, and his and his moves. He was fantastic last night against Colorado all night creating stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, he's been phenomenal. Now I mentioned it might take something historic from someone to challenge him for the award. I guess you could argue that what Brock Faber is doing just purely based on how much Minnesota is using him is historic, right? Like I think yeah. Toby Enstrom, I was looking this up this morning, Toby Enstrom in 2007-8 for the Thrashers is the only rookie that played more than him since the 2005 lockout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was 24-28 for Enstrom. Faber right now is at 24-18 and quickly climbing. And at that point, Enstrom was like a 23-year-old draft plus five season defenseman, whereas Faber is mm-hmm. 21. And I think what he's doing is is much more impressive in that regard. So yeah, maybe you could argue that especially if this keeps up or something resembling what he's done recently, um, then that might qualify in that camp of of historic compared to what, to what Bedard's done. Yeah, uh, there's there's two things I want to say here. Number one, I I do agree that last night Bedard was probably one of his, his best games this year. And a, a key point in that is Philip Kershev was nowhere near him. And I think a lot of Bedard's defensive issues have to do with the fact that he's played so much with Kershev, who's been such a negative in that regard in past years and him being forced up the lineup in that role. I, I don't think it's helping Bedard in that manner. And obviously the defense he plays in front of, I think the, the issue with Faber is that his impact is almost entirely without the puck defensively. He's been a rock there. He, I looked it up for Joe Smith and Michael Russo were doing Faber stories all the time because they love in Minnesota and his, Defensive impact is expected to be like the best of any rookie since 2007-8. His total impact is on track to be comparable to Kale McCarr and Adam Fox. I think the thing that needs to happen is he needs to put some numbers on the board along with playing these minutes. And one thing that might help is he was recently moved to the top power play. And he's been he's only two points off of Luke Hughes right now and wasn't getting power play this time before that, I think that could be something that sets him apart down the stretch. And if he continues doing this well without Jonas Brodeen as well, that could be a big thing for, for his narrative case. Let me just close the loop on Bedard here. I, I have so many other thoughts on, on Faber, but you mentioned Kurashev there, and, and I agree in terms of like the, the total package, especially factoring in defense. But I just think when you watch how other teams are defending him and game planning mm-hmm. for him, the options are so limited in terms of yeah. talent that can even keep up or, or convert on some of the chances he creates. And so I, I'm actually okay with just experimenting with like the younger, more talented, at least theoretically players with him and seeing what fits because there's just such a lack of respect for anyone else on the team that, <laughs> yeah. that, that like you want to make sure he's not drowning. Right. And you got to make sure he's actually at least got a chance. And so I think that's why their power play has been so bad because he's really one of the only threats and that's that's such a shame of the of the taylor hall injury for a variety of reasons but yeah. mostly because he was one guy who could physically keep up with him in terms of skating mm-hmm. ability could occasionally carry the puck up the ice and and take some of the uh burden off of him there and allow him to kind of you know skate hide mm-hmm. and then show up in the offensive zone and get the puck in a, in a scoring position instead now all eyes are on him and he has to do it all himself and i just don't think they have 
very many options to kind of fill that gap. So I think like at the top of my checklist, and I know they've drafted a bunch of other high skilled, intriguing, fast skating forwards over the past couple of years. And I'm sure those guys will get integrated in the coming seasons in, in Chicago. But mm-hmm. I think that's at the top of my wish list, right? Just getting guys who can actually keep up with the way he needs to play to be effective. Yeah. And I, it's been a shame how bad Lucas Reichel has been all season. Uh, Cause he was the, I think one of the better options for Bedard this season aside from Hall, and he just sort of face-planted, didn't look anything like he did last year. I would have liked if they experiment more. It seemed like they kept going to the Khrushchev well, whether it worked or not, and there's a lot of times, a lot of games where Bedard didn't have the puck as much as he could have because he's spending a lot of time defending, and Khrushchev, I I just don't see it, and I don't think it's a huge coincidence that they put him with Donato and Reichel last night, and he played a lot better against a contending team. That's true. That's a good point. Okay, on Faber. So mm-hmm. I was thinking about this because you're right. Like, I think the points will come, especially if he's playing all situations, but especially top uh, power play unit the way he has recently. And his points are actually fine, but you look at a lot of the other categories, it's not typically like these aren't the players in awards. We often talk about this from the Norris perspective, but I think it applies to this Calder discussion as well. The stuff Faber does doesn't necessarily, like you can't just, go on the NHL.com stats page and yeah. look it up and be like, all right, I can see his impact. I can see his activity on the ice, right? It's a lot of suppression of things happening. And so mm-hmm. unless you're watching all these games or looking at some of the numbers you and I are talking about, you're probably not going to have that appreciation of it. Um, and it made me think of defensemen like this and, and this conversation for the Calder. And actually the one that I went back to was, funny enough, 2013 with Jonas Brodin. But I remember mm-hmm. like passionately, this was one of my first sort of getting into the industry, making these debate, making these like um, arguments for why this stuff matters. In yeah. 2013, Jonas Brodin, I was like, this guy's playing like 23, 24 minutes a night regularly in the top pairing with with Ryan Suter. His five on five impacts are through the roof. No rookie defenseman should be this good and this smooth already. Let's give him some love. And I think he finished fourth that year. Yep. In the and, Calder. So And Faber's better. Faber's he been has been better. better. He has been uh, better. I... I went through all the defensemen who finished top five in color voting for Joe Smith's story and Brodeen was on there and he did have some strong impacts. He played a lot. It was just Faber. Faber wasn't in the Brodeen class. He was in the the Fox McCarr class, which I think is a huge testament to his, his defense. And if he gets his offensive game going to have just someone who already looks like such a complete defender playing these minutes, these tough minutes, I I don't know. He he's, he definitely has to be up there. He does. I mean, with no Brodeen and Spurgeon in the past four games, 30-07, 31-34, 28-18. As yeah. I said, what a slacker, taking a night off there. And then 30-19. And most notably, three of those, like those last three came in the past four days because mm-hmm. they had a back-to-back in there as well. Uh, just ridiculous. The 5-on-5 five five impacts, they're up 30-17 to 17 with them on the ice, 54%. Goals expected goal share fifty six percent, high danger chance share. You just see how like smooth and poised he is. I've actually been impressed with his offensive instincts as well, and like how he's been picking his spots and jumping in. Now, I think one of my concerns is, and like, listen, right now he's playing on that top pair. All situations, Jacob Middleton is is his partner, right? Like, I, I think mm-hmm. the responsibilities for him are just so immense. I worry though, like, and I'm sure when Spurgeon comes back and Brodeen will come back eventually, he won't need to play 30 minutes a night, but it's like really difficult. It, it goes back to that actually suitor conversation we would have for years where when you're playing this many minutes, you have to pace yourself. Right. Yeah. And so for a young defenseman like this, I would love to see him like develop and incorporate more offensive habits into his game and, and really, you know, be involved in that capacity. And that's not a luxury you can really have when you're playing 30 minutes, cause you essentially have to do everything. And so mm-hmm. you just have to monitor your energy and sort of pace yourself in that way. So being on the top power play, you know, will help with the, with the boxcar stats, but um, he's doing great right now. I just, obviously uh, I don't think it's ideal. And I, I'm sure the wild don't want him to be playing 30 minutes a night, but they kind of have to right now. And they're winning these games under John Hines. So I think they're probably going to keep riding that until the wheels fall off. Yeah. Uh, just unbelievable. I remember a quote earlier in the season from their previous coach, Dean Vason, saying uh, that it's basically only been Faber 
being their best defenseman, everyone's been slacking off and it hasn't taken long for him to legitimately look like Minnesota's best defender. Yeah. Is there anything else on uh, this Calder class in general that you think is, is worth noting? Cause obviously the conversation, the, the question was about Bedard and his competition. And I think we highlighted Faber as, as the top mm-hmm. guy that's rising up the ranks. Um, I think obviously like Fantilli and Carlson, their future is so bright, but this award is, in theory, impact for this season alone versus mm-hmm. like what our future expectations are, right? So it's not a knock on any of these guys to be like, they're not going to be awesome in future years. It's just in terms of like what they're doing for their team right now. And part of that is just being given the chance to play this. Whereas you you look at Ventilli's ice time, right? Or you look at Carlson's nights off occasionally that are baked in and, and it's just like a different situation mm-hmm. for them in reality than for someone like Bedard or Faber. Yeah, like Carlson is quite at the top of the lineup, but the the nights off do make it difficult to really get the full impact to be, I guess, near Bedard in this conversation. Uh, Luke Hughes, I think, has been great for the Devils, but at the same time, you look at his context versus Faber's, and it's not even really close. And when you see that he only has two more points than Faber and his offense isn't as eye-popping, the defense just overwhelms that as much as there are a lot of good rookies this year, including uh, Minchikov in Anaheim as well, I think it's really Faber and Bedard separating themselves from the pack. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, let's move on to uh, the next topic, which is expected goals. And so here's a question from Connor that says, it feels like expected goals is becoming less useful as more emphasis is placed on creating chances through lateral movement and other means that make tracking just shot location potentially misleading. Is this just my perception of expected goals changing as I learn more about it, or is this a real trend? And if expected goals is becoming a less useful stat, what options are there to tracking online success the way we went from plus minus to Corsi, from Corsi to expected goals over the years? Now, uh, this is obviously like we could take this any number of ways, but you wrote recently about power plays in particular and how Mm -hmm. like some of the pitfalls maybe or, or or dangers of looking at historical trends in terms of what our expectations are for for certain shot profiles and then carrying that over to what we think is going to happen in terms of regression this year. I think that's a really interesting conversation, right? Because often we just sort of look at the same numbers and cite them without actual sort of maybe nuance or kind of critical thought in terms of what's happening in today's game and the product in 2023-24 is obviously so wildly different than it was even as recently as like 2017 or 2018, right? And mm-hmm. so I think using historical trends for any number of years back might not necessarily be as accurate as we'd liked in terms of prognosticating what's going to happen the rest of this season. Uh, how do you kind of feel about this? And, and what do you think about this idea that expected goals, while obviously still more useful than, than plus minus or even raw shot volume, um, might be becoming a bit diluted, I guess, with the way the game's being played? Yeah, I think since 2017-18, goal scoring has gone way up. And with that change, I think the importance of just looking at actual goals has been has become more and more important. I think people are still a bit stuck on just looking at expected goals or shot attempts because finishing talent and goaltending talent matters more than it did in... 2015-16 when they were like 5.5 goals per game where owning the puck and getting the most shot volume and possession all that those were the big tickets obviously but we're in a game now where actually putting the puck in that actually making saves makes a big difference if you can do it sustainably well I I think the Canucks are a great example of this where they're playing very hot right now they're scoring they're finishing they they're not going to maintain a 105 PDO or whatever it is, but they have natural finishing talented team. They have a very strong goalie. They are going to be better than their expected goals total. And that needs to be something that, that's accounted for. On the other hand, we don't want to ignore expected goals completely either. I think one of the interesting things last year is everyone thought the Sabres would be amazing this year. This would be their big step up. I think even on the power play side, one curious thing is that they were seventh in 
goals per 60 on the power play last year. They were 27th in expected goals per 60 on the power play. And even if expected goals on the power play is becoming less useful because of all the lateral plays and pre-shot movement, all that, you still want to pay attention to those kinds of discrepancies and decide what is fact and, and what is fiction. Because shot locations still do matter a lot, even if there are other things that are beginning to matter a bit more that we don't have access to. Yeah, I do agree with that. I think, I mean, first off, the shot charts this year are a bit wonky. I think the the tracking data in terms of locations, I don't know what's going on with it, but you look at the shot charts for a lot of teams and you'd think that every team is getting so good defensively because there's just like this blue chasm of nothing happening up the middle of the ice. And I mm -hmm. think that's just something that's that's off with the data. I don't think that's actually what's happening in reality. Um, but yeah, there's like a changing philosophy right there's i think the dynamics are so different because certain inefficient shots like a slap shot from the point or kind of trying to come down down the wing on the on the rush and just being the first guy in and then shooting teams are trying to stray away from that and become more efficient and so on the mm -hmm. one hand it's becoming more difficult to separate yourself because everything's becoming so cookie cutter in terms of everyone is is looking at all the same data and trends and is more aware of it now. And so is trying to replicate that. And so everyone's trying to do the same thing, which is mm -hmm. why it's so interesting when a team kind of comes out of left field doing something different and gets interesting results out of it. But also now, like, I, I just think the, the historical precedent of what a certain shot is worth and where it's coming from has just changed yeah. so much, right? Like uh, when you look at, especially the expected goals, um, estimates or values for like, a rebound compared to um, a rush shot, it, it it would make it seem like this rebound is is so much more valuable in reality. Especially if it's close to the goalie, we know it's probably not going, and it's just going to go straight into their jam into their pads. Whereas mm -hmm. the rush shot is probably significantly more valuable, but maybe our expectations of that haven't really caught up with with that reality yet. Yeah, and even for goalies, if you look at just one example, I always go to evolving hockey, so I generally mm -hmm. veer towards their expected goals model, but you have over half the league saving more goals than the expected. There are more expected goals than actual goals right now. And I think there needs to be sort of a, maybe not a recalibration, but something there needs to be thought put into recent trends with expected goals because you can't use the, the full data set to train the probability of a shot going in, which I don't know how often you want to update it. I don't know how many past years you want to use to get the right amount, but stats from 2010 to 2016, I don't think are super relevant to how often shots go in anymore because the sport is just so different now. Well, I think the baselines are also shifting dramatically and, and, and going up, right? Like we talk all the time about how, okay, save percentage around the league is down. Well, that means shooting percentage is up, right? And so... Yeah. A lot of our kind of like previous beliefs in terms of what a league average shooter is or what we should expect is obviously going up. But I think part of it is teams are getting more efficient in terms of using better players, right? Like there's fewer sort of dead spots in the lineup where there's going to be complete zeros or, or black holes offensively. And then you're looking for little edges and you're streamlining more shots where, all right, there's fewer point shots now. That means that your better players are shooting for more dangerous areas. So I think the team shooting percentage is going to go up. So when you look at a team like the Canucks and, and their PDO and their, and their team shooting percentage, obviously that's inflated, but I don't think it's necessarily as crazy as it might've been when, mm -hmm. when remember that like wild team, uh, however many years ago when like they started the, they were like the first PDO team. I remember where like they started yeah. the season and their numbers were just absolutely preposterous and, all the shot data suggested that they were due for a massive regression. And that was one of the first big debates we had. And then obviously they regressed quite dramatically. There was that avalanche team, the, the, the things they do results in a 107 PDO or whatever, of course, like we've had these debates for years and it always keeps coming back to a certain mean at mm -hmm. the same time though. I think that mean is probably moving up compared to where it was four or five years ago. Yeah, uh, I also want to shout out to Mike Kelly, who's probably one of my favorite followers on Twitter. He had the the infamous, the things the yes. apps do result in a 106 PDO back in the day, but he is really great on Twitter. A lot of great nuggets from from track data and a great understanding of the game. And I, I always learn something following him. And I think 
I love the meme, but it's so oh yeah, it it, is, it's it, so good. But he's was, he's great. Uh, it, he is great, and I really enjoy his content as well. That was a foundational one. It was yeah. a, an important brick that we had to lay for for the house that we built. Uh, that we used strong now. redemption arc for him. It was yes, yeah, definitely. Um, okay, one more quick thing that's related to this before we go to break. Then Brandon asks: Is controlling high danger chance share more important than just shot share? This is sort of related to what we were just talking about. I think clearly yes. Yeah. Um, I guess the the repeatability is maybe the the question mark here. Obviously, there's certain teams that with the way they're choosing to play offensively and defensively are going to be more likely to replicate that, I guess. But maybe mm-hmm. it's just because there's fewer attempts, right? It can be a bit more volatile, especially early in a season. So maybe that would be kind of the counter to it. But how do you feel about this from like a sort of philosophical perspective? Yeah, I would definitely... Between those two, I would care more about high danger chances because I think goalies now are are pretty good at stopping things outside of that range. But at the same time, some of the shots outside of that range can be more high danger than they appear just because of all the pre-shot movement we we don't have. Though it really just depends on the sample size, I guess. And if you have a small sample size, maybe it's still a bit more meaningful to look at shot attempts and if you want to know how good a team is in quality i would still prefer looking at expected goals but over a a longer period i i definitely care about who's getting into those more dangerous areas more for sure Hmm. okay dom let's uh let's take our break here and then we come back we'll uh pick things back up and and keep chatting about a variety of different topics you are listening to the hockey pdo cast streaming on the sportsnet radio network Catch up on what happened in Vancouver sports with Halford and Bruff in the morning. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back here on the Hockey PDO cast, joined by Dom Luzchishin, a Dim and Dom production. Dom, let's, uh, let's keep it going. So here's a question. Uh, that I think is really interesting. Sam Reinhardt is fifth in goals on pace for nearly 50 this season. He's also in a contract here. How do you think Bill Zito will or should approach this? It can be argued he's kind of set a precedent of having a knowledge of aging curves by trading away Jonathan Huberto and Mackenzie Weger to avoid having to sign 30-year-olds to term. At the same time, I feel like Reinhardt could buck some of the aging trends and age someone like someone like Pavelski. Is that a fair comp? And what do you think? the Panthers should do. I think this is a really interesting one. The Panthers are mm-hmm. a fascinating team because not only, um, you know, they made the Stanley Cup final last year. I think they're going to play a significant role that we can talk about uh, in the latter half of this season as well. And then they have so many massive contract decisions to make over the next two years that are going to clearly impact the trajectory of the team. Um, and the first one is going to be Reinhardt and sort of how they respond to this season where he's clearly earning himself a few extra dollars with uh with each goal that he scores. Yeah, it's a, a fascinating question. I don't know if they necessarily bucked the age curbs by trading away Hubert and Weger. I think they just had a slam dunk. We have Matthew Kachuk available and we gotta go get a a superstar, basically. I think they would have liked to I don't know if they would like to keep Weaver. Actually, I think I remember they didn't like him that much. But uh, yeah, they do seem to have an understanding of that. I I don't mind the comparison to Joe Pavelski. I think that's just extremely wishful thinking when it comes to an right. age curve because he is an age curve breaker. He seems to be getting better with age every year. Maybe not this year specifically, but he's been fantastic the past three years. Uh, so I have Sam Reinhart currently at nine point five million over an eight year deal. 10 point something over the next four years. And then after that is when you start getting into the, the area where he's no longer a $10 million player. And I think with Barkov at 10 and Kachuk at nine and a half, you have an internal structure. That means he probably won't get that high anyway. If you can get him for eight and a half, eight, nine, I feel like that's not too bad. Florida tends to get some, some discounts knowing that, there's a Barkov effect or a Kachuk effect. Well, it's state tax too. Yeah, that too. Um, 
So I think he'll be worth what he gets and definitely worth it as long as this contention window, however long it is for them. So I I would do it up to a certain point because I think he, even last year when he wasn't scoring, he was still a really good player. Um, I just don't pay him for what he is this year because I don't think he's that. Somewhere somewhere in between. It's a nice nice middle ground. Yeah, I think, yeah, certainly the context of, of situation and team structure and all the finances there are probably going to limit the ceiling. And I think he seems to be enjoying his time there quite a bit as he should so i imagine he would want to stay unless someone just blows him out of the water in the unrestricted free agent or unrestricted free agent market um here's my thing though i think the pavelski comp is interesting from like a playing style perspective right because you look at what reinhardt's done this year and it's just being really crafty around the net and like tipping pucks and rebounds and and obviously amongst all the other utility he provides for the panthers but that's why he's scoring a lot of goals Mm -hmm. now Pavelski the past three years, 3.21 points per 60, 3.18 points per 60. This year, 3.55 points per 60. Now, obviously, his usage is coming down a bit, but those are his three best marks in his entire career. Yeah. And those are his age 37, 38, and 39 seasons. Now, the role he plays this year on that top line and power play, but also um, what we just talked about in the first half of the show, how different the league is now than it was at the start of his career obviously like scoring is is easier mm-hmm. um so that factors into it but listen like when you mention him being a rule breaker when he first signed that deal to leave san jose and go to dallas in 2019 mm-hmm. i was like oh man that third year that's gonna be a tough one and <laughs> that was two contracts ago so um shows what shows what i know shows what we know and uh, obviously just immense kudos and respect to Pavelski for being able to continue this right and, and adapt as his career has gone on so I like the comp but it's also very risky comparing anyone to like the true historical aberration which Pavelski has represented and so you can always get it yourself into dangerous waters when you see someone doing something that's just truly unprecedented like this and mm-hmm. then being like well this player who plays like him right now is going to follow that path because that's part of what made Pavelski so special in his ability to actually keep doing this into his thirties, into his late thirties. Yeah. I, I would like to go on the record saying I love that contract because it was only 7 million. And I think at the time he was probably as good as Reinhardt now, which is like a 10 million player or whatever. And I wasn't too worried about the third year. I thought he'd gracefully fall to a 7 million player when he was at that age. And he was even better than that somehow. Well, it's funny because that year, I think he scored like 38 goals and shot 20%. And that was part of my concern where I was like, I don't, I just, I just, as practice, I don't like paying for this and picking up the tab on it. And then mm-hmm. uh, hilarious how that has unfolded. Now, Reinhardt, you mentioned is shooting 24% this year, which is obviously sky high and is on pace for 47 goals at the moment. Now he is historically a 15% shooter. He's like dipped below 13 just once. And he averaged 38, 35, and 31 goals per 82 games the past three years. So while this is obviously at the top of his expectations, and I wouldn't ever really expect him to repeat this, I don't think it's necessarily that crazy, right? This isn't um, this isn't like a 20-goal guy who shoots 10% all of a sudden doing this and then cashing in and me being like, well, he's never going to repeat that because obviously he's not going to get paid as a 47-goal scorer. And if he gets paid as a 35 goal scorer, that's probably what he is for at least the next handful of seasons. So I think that's perfectly reasonable from a contract perspective. Yeah, I, I just looked up the uh, projection I have for Reinhardt, 33.8 goals. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty bang on. Um, I think the other thing with Reinhardt is like Pavelski, uh, sneaky good defensively from the wing in a way that I don't think people gave either guy as much credit for as they should have. And I think that maybe puts a, a higher floor on his value because Reinhardt's a a smart player and that should continue. And he has a some pretty good chemistry with Barkov. That could be the new Bergeron-Marchand combo that terrorizes the league at both ends of the ice for, for their 30s. 
Yeah, I mean, his versatility is just so such a luxury, right? Like last mm-hmm. postseason, he's on this like super checking line with Lusterin and, and Lundell. Now he's playing top wide scoring role with Barkov. He's a key member of the power play. Like I think him and Barkov kill penalties together too this season. Like there's mm-hmm. they use him in every facet and he crushes it. He's such a smart player. I, I'm I'm glad he's being rewarded for the season he's having. The reason why I thought this was interesting beyond just like the thought exercise of what Reinhardt is worth is this Panthers team, despite the injuries they had at the start of the year and us being like, all right, are they going to fall back down to earth after last year's Cinderella run? Well, SportLogic has them eighth in expected goals generated offensively, but defensively, they're a top five team in every single metric. Expected goals against, inner slot shots allowed, slot shots allowed, offensive zone time surrendered. Like their aggressive defending style has them just suppressing everything. And Barkov's mm-hmm. going to run away with the Selkie, I think. Um, although shout out to Sean Couturier for having the season he's having. Mm-hmm. Once they start getting some more goals and regression from that Kachuk Bennett combination, I think that the ceiling for this team is even like they're better than they were last year based on the way they're performing right now, which I think is, is amazing. Um, and you mentioned that sort of contending window it's clearly defined by not only the contracts of Barkov and and Kachuk but also their primes right Mm -hmm. whereas five years from now when they're different players who really cares I'm sure Bill Zito will be doing another job or something uh we'll see what the league looks like at that point but it won't really matter from this perspective so the reason why this matters this summer not only is Reinhardt an unrestricted free agent but Brandon Montu and Gustav Forsling also are and then next summer, Ekblad, Verhage, and Bennett are UFAs. And so that is, that's their team. Yeah. Pretty much everyone, other than Kachuk and Barkov, uh, they're the only ones that are sort of nailed down. Everyone else is going to be in a similar conversation here where they're going to be a UFA expecting a massive pay raise from what they're making right now, and they're going to be in their late 20s. So I guess... What they do with Reinhardt here will be very indicative in terms of how they're going to proceed. And I'm very fascinated to see what you what you would do. What would you do if you were running the Panthers there with all those names in kind of precarious positions contractually uh, at this stage of their career? I think you just got to identify who your core is and try not to overpay. I think Florida has been very good at getting some bargain bin deals, partly because their system just extracts the most out of all these players, Bennett, Verhage, Forsling, these guys weren't what they are now until they got to Florida. They have a knack for finding broken toys and turning them into something valuable. So I think they get a discount for, I guess, those guys playing well in the system, but not maybe being as good as the contract they might get somewhere else. Uh, Montour is a fantastic example. Last year, put up 70-something points, whatever. Before that, just a fine third-pairing defenseman. What do you pay for that? I I don't know. But they, if they don't sign someone, I think I would trust that they made the right decision because this is, seems to be a very smart organization that knows what they're doing and does the right thing when it comes to these things. And Montour, I mean, he was just so outrageously good last postseason, right? All, all year, but especially with his goal scoring and just like the minutes he was eating and, and just how forceful everything he did was on the ice. Mm-hmm. Um, like it was so impressive. He's going to be 30 and plays such a physically demanding style where he's actually might be the one I'd be most wary yeah. of walking down long-term, whereas a guy like Forrest, like I know he's a left-shot D, so maybe slightly less valuable compared to Montour's handedness, but he'll be like 28 with, I just feel like, easier miles on his body, and mm-hmm. I think he's going to age differently. But the reason why all these guys are interesting is Ekblad's obviously making 7.5, so maybe he's a bit of an outlier in this case, but like Montour, 2.67. Uh, or sorry, Montreux 3.5, Forsling 2.67, Verhage 4.17, and then Bennett 4.4. Like, all these guys are could just do for such significant pay raises, especially Forsling and Verhage, right? Where, yeah. like, they're legitimate, top of the lineup, incredibly valuable players who are getting paid as depth pieces right now. And so, 
the cap is going up by 5%, it'll go up a bit more, but there's going to be a lot of extra money that needs to be handed out to these guys. And how Bill Zito navigates that, I think, is is one of the more like interesting subplots in the league right now. When is Bobrovsky's contract done? Well, this is why this is this is our connection. This is that was gonna be my next point. So 2026 expires. So two more years after this one, 10 million per, obviously. But here's the kicker. So July 1st, this summer, once you pay a signing bonus, he actually is owed only 11 million total mm-hmm. over those final two seasons. And his full no trade clause becomes a 16 team list. Mm-hmm. Okay. They, so I'm sure strategically he'll probably be able to figure out which teams would be even able to pay him $11 million in cash over the next two years or willing, mm-hmm. and then just kind of make his list accordingly. But at least it opens the door for if they want to sweeten the deal and, and move off of his contract. I think there actually is an out this summer, which seemed impossible as recently as a year ago. Yeah, and he's been pretty decent this year. I think his reputation is crawling back a bit. It might not be as hard of a a deal to move if there's a team that is tanking and has a lot of cap room and can weaponize it. Uh it might that might be the the route to go. Yeah. Well, and uh, another factor in this is I mean they've used so many picks and prospects to build this team over the years that there's very little in the way of future assets coming as well. So I think that probably would motivate someone like Bill Zito and the Panthers to to go even more all in with this core mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to take a calculated step back and then Yeah. You know, building for something for three years from now. Like I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay. One final question here that I think is interesting because you obviously do the player cards and um, you know, projections and also um like contract figures in terms of what players are worth on the open market. Pixies says, what is the qualifier where we feel expected numbers, goals for percentage, and raw production meet? For example, if Genny Malkin has had a negative 515 goal share for years, but I feel like many of us would still consider him an impact player, even if I won five. How do we navigate the conversation of these nuances of quote unquote advanced analytics? while understanding that the game is obviously won by raw numbers of goals scored and these analytics are still somewhat subjective and circumstantial. I think it's really interesting, right? Because I think often we evaluate players and their performance in a vacuum where you look at whatever numbers you want to look at and then you say, all right, they're playing this well. This is what how we compare them to their peers. Um, but obviously, at the end of the day, all that really matters is 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 winning games and you being on the ice for more goals and then again uh, for than against and that's a big role of this conversation so how do we from a player value perspective i guess like how do we compare sort of what matters and sort of how we put all of these pieces of the puzzle together in our description of their performance well to put a nice bow on this chat because we started with this topic i think you do have to pay attention to what's actually happening i think goals have become really important since scoring has gone up. And especially for forwards, if you got a forward who has three expected goals, but he is only on the ice for two, I'm sorry, that guy probably stinks. He can't score and maybe he's a good third or fourth liner, but I'm not expecting this massive regression. There'll be some, but there are a lot of players who can generate chances but can't put the puck in the net you gotta for fours at least separate where malkin's goals percentage is coming from and whether that is he is not scoring as much as he should or if it's the goaltending behind him because for forwards i'll be a lot more lenient for goals against used for defensemen when you have a big enough sample i think like over three years if a guy is on the ice for more goals against than expected there there might be a little reason for that if you're a defenseman for a forward I would still lean towards blaming the goalie or defense behind him. And if that's the reason Mullican's goals percentage isn't hasn't been very high lately, then I don't think it's his fault. But at the same time, he's getting points. He is contributing to offense in that way. And that is something that does need to be accounted for. Something that I do with my own model is sort of bridge that gap where I the the basic gist of it is it's 
production plus play driving and finding the the middle ground between a model that might only look at a player's play driving and a fan who is only looking at points and sort of bridging the gap between those two thoughts. And a lot of time the issue is just looking at defense and how a player suppresses shots, I think is a valid thing that points will obviously miss, but generally speaking, especially for forwards, if a player has a lot of points, it's probably because he's a good offensive player and that will usually line up with the offensive play drive met- metrics. There are obviously some exceptions to the rule where some players are empty calorie scorers, but even if they are, they're they're still the ones creating that offense individually. Yeah, as long as they're not like just very blatantly just cheating for offense and showing no regard, like just kind of doing laps in their defensive zone and just waiting for the first second they can they can fly the zone. And even, yeah. even then, if they're just taking those opportunities and scoring at a sky-high rate, then that's still obviously very valuable. But yeah, you're offensively, you're in much more control, I guess, of your outcome and your result than the inverse where you can be good defensively, but ultimately if, if your goalie gives up, you know, just doesn't stop the puck, it's going to... And, and we're purely evaluating your defensive play based on goals against, um, then you're going to look poor, even though you didn't necessarily do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Beyond Malkin, I think like Kyle Connor is an interesting one for this conversation because you look and 2017-18 was his first full NHL season. With him on the ice at 5-1-5, the Jets won those minutes 49-42. In all the years since then, minus seven, minus one, minus two, minus three. Last year, plus one goal share. And then this year, even though he has 17 goals in 25 games before he got hurt, they scored 17 goals of 5-on-5 with him on the ice and they gave up 17, so they broke even. And obviously, he's an immensely valuable player because he's such a plus finisher and Mm -hmm. this doesn't take into account power play, even though the Jets' power play hasn't been good. But, um, you know, him being able to turn shots that might not even register as high danger into goals is such a valuable skill. And those are the things you pay for typically on the market. So like, he's a very valuable player and an interesting piece for the jets, but also someone who, when you look at it through the context of this conversation, the jets have never really actually won their five on five minutes whenever he's been out there, even though he's played such a massive role for them in all those seasons. Yeah. And that's sort of what I aim to do with my model is on the one hand, you have Kyle Connor, who's scoring a lot of points and is up there with some of the best in the league. And on the other hand, you have his on-ice metrics, which are extremely pedestrian year after year. He is probably not as good as point totals. He's probably not as bad as his 50% goal share or whatever. Right. There's a, a middle ground that I try to walk along as best as I can. Mm. Okay, well, let's talk about that that middle ground you try to walk on. I'll let you on the way out here plug some stuff. Let the listeners know either uh, what you've written recently, what you want them to check out, or, or what you're working on, and we can look forward to uh, coming out soon. I am going on vacation. Oh, well, I'm taking time off nice. in two weeks, but I, I have some goodies planned for that time and writing away this week to make it happen. Uh, me and the two collaborators I work with most, Sean Gentilly and Shana Goldman, we are currently in the process of ranking every Stanley Cup champion uh, in the cap era. Uh, Who's your top three? That's a great question. Uh, That abs team from a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. I forget all the years now, they all blend together in my mind. Um, What was it? (laughs) 2022, I guess. Uh, That team was just so loaded when you look at all the pieces that have moved on since and got Mm -hmm. paid accordingly. They were playing like complimentary roles in that team. I think that the first Lightning Cup team, obviously Stamkos was out, um, but Hedman was still playing at his absolute apex level. And then they had that Gord Coleman Goodrill line that was like mm-hmm. their third line on the depth sheet, but actually playing second line minutes, and they were just outrageous. Uh, how do you how do you factor those two Lightning teams in terms of which one was stronger? Obviously, the context of like that being in the middle of COVID, and then the bubble and then the shortened season where you're playing in these specific divisions all all obviously factor in. Um, But yeah, uh, I think those two teams are interesting. Yeah. Uh, So I ranked the the second one higher. 
Shauna and Shayna ranked the first one higher. And then we did that. And then we added a goal differential component where I adjusted every team to six goals per game for regular season. And then same thing for playoffs, but also accounting for quality of competition and what an average team would have done with the same schedule. And the second team actually came out like fairly ahead just based on how they played in the playoffs. Right. Uh, and they played that entire season without Kucherov and were pretty close in during the regular season as well. So that'd be my pick, but uh, top two, no spoilies, but I think everyone's going to know it's going to be that Colorado team and the Detroit team for most 708. Mm, yeah. um, list will come out, I think, next week. And then we're doing some World's Cup of hockey previews as well, and that'll be fun. Uh, but in terms of the topics we talked about, we just dropped our player cards at The Athletic a couple of weeks ago. They're updated almost daily. If there's three games on slate, I'm not doing that. But if there's five or more, uh, they'll be updated the next morning, and you can see how well each player is doing from a production standpoint and a play driving standpoint and how my model combines them. And I think most importantly, what they're expected to do over the rest of the season and how sort of the regression works in terms of maybe a player is currently on a 60 goal pace, but they're expected to land at a 45 goal pace. And that is, I think, a good window in understanding the things we're talking about here with what do you expect these players to do based on their track record, their history, and whether they've been a little luckier if it's for real or not this year. Awesome, buddy. Well, I'm looking forward to checking that out. Enjoy your vacation. Very well-deserved. My only plug here on the way out is to let the listeners remind them. Uh, we use the Discord questions from other listeners on today's show. We'll continue to do so. So if you want to get involved, uh, just join the PDO cast channel uh the invite link is in the show notes get in there have some fun with us and so that's all i got for today we're gonna get out of here thank you to everyone for listening and we'll be back soon with more of the hockey pdo cast on the sportsnet radio network